I invite you and I encourage you to turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, you might remember if you were part of the remnant last week. We had a little remnant last week because of Memorial Day uh, weekend. We had a blessed time. It was a great time studying the Word of God together. Uh, but you might remember if you were here, we took a little bit of a detour from Philippians. We studied Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. We looked at Paul's admonition and his encouragement to Timothy to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus, to be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, to pass on the truth that he had been given, to be involved in discipleship, to suffer hardship as a good soldier, to work hard, to compete according to the rules as a good athlete would. And as we come to our text this morning, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, Paul really continues with this analogy of being a soldier or being an athlete. Any soldier knows that one of the biggest issues when mapping out and sketching out a battle plan is where are we landing, where are we pursuing the enemy, and what is our footing? What does it look like? All of the difficult battles that we have faced in United States history Part of the difficulty has been because of our footing. You remember the difficulties in Normandy, storming the beach. Um, We were on sand, not very sure of footing, and it was wet and it was um, difficult to gain your footing. You think of uh, the Pacific Theater in World War II in Peleliu or Okinawa or Iwo Jima. You think of all of these different wars where men are fighting with terrible footing, mud, sludge. And because of that, many of those soldiers that fought in World War II said part of the enemy uh, was just the footing that we did not have. You think about an athlete. You know every sport has its own footwear? Bowling has its own footwear. Um, You think, you know, there are some sports that you just don't need certain footwear, but no, you do. Wrestling, you have to have certain footwear. Weightlifting, you're just standing there, but you still need a certain type of shoe. Uh, Many of our sports that we compete in wear cleats. And again, little spikes on the shoes. I understand that for baseball, if you're running and you're trying to round first to slide back into second, I understand that. I understand it in football, if you're trying to gain your footing as you're um, about to tackle somebody. But you know they have cleats for golf? You're, you're standing still. You're, you're pivoting just a little bit. Maybe it's because they want more work to do to, put, to fill in the divot that they leave by their cleat mark. I don't know. Keith will fill you in on why you need cleats for golf. I remember the first time that I played golf with my dad. I was shocked. I'm just wearing my Nike sneakers, and he's like, no, no, you need cleats. What, really? For, for golf? Yeah, you do. Oh, okay. Still didn't improve my golf game. Um, footing. It's vitally important. Whether you're a soldier, whether you're an athlete, specifically if you are walking the walk with Jesus Christ hand in hand with him, if you are a good soldier of Jesus Christ, you need to make sure your footing is secure. And that's why Paul will say in Philippians chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved These verses that will follow deal with this issue of standing firm. How can we stand firm? And this is not 
an issue that is only found in Philippians. Paul writes elsewhere in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, You continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So there is an ability to stand firm in what you know to be true, and there is also an ability to falter, to fall, to slip, and to slide. Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you are instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So firmly rooted. The opposite of standing firm would be found in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul says that we are not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We are to to be firmly rooted. We are to have a ballast in our boat, as it were, so that when the storms and the waves of trials or false doctrine comes and they, they try to overturn our boat, we have something that will hold us, an anchor for our souls. In the passage before us this morning, there are many ways that Paul gives to enable us to stand firm. We're only going to be able to look at two of them. Um, And just so you know, a little roadmap of where we're going. We're going to look at two of the ways that Paul gives to stand firm as believers. And then next week, we're going to start our series in the summer through the Psalms. Uh, We're going to start with Psalm 1. um, Start at the very beginning. Very good place to start. We're going to start there, and we're going to move through. Uh, You will hear from uh, some of the other pastors here. You'll hear from um, some of the other men as they bring uh, some of their their favorite psalms to bear for our souls. But even as we go through the summer through the psalms, you will hear the truth of God's word that will enable you to stand firm. So we'll keep the theme going. And then in the fall, once we're done with our summer through the psalms, we will pick it back up in Philippians chapter 4. We spent a long time in Philippians, so we'll take a little bit of a break. And then we'll come back and we'll finish it up before Christmas, Lord willing, uh, when we get back in the fall. Let's read this passage together and then we'll dive in to see just two ways in which Paul would urge us to stand firm in Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One of the reasons why I want to spend a little bit of time on these verses is because there is a promise in these verses, a promise that is well known to your own soul, that we love, that we cling to, But the promise is only possible if we follow through the steps and all of the steps that God gives us through the Apostle Paul. You can't just jump to verse 7 and cling to the promise of the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension, guarding your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, if you have not lived out verses 2 through 6. I think so often that hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, 
comes to bear here. Um, what trials that we have and oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We, we bear the pain and the trial and the suffering needlessly because we don't go through the steps that God has given to us to give us the peace that passes all comprehension and understanding. These verses outline for us really four different ways that we are supposed to stand firm in the Lord. And if we do that, if we stand firm in the Lord in these four ways, we will have the peace that passes all understanding. And so my goal this morning as we dive in together with these first two of the many ways that we are supposed to stand firm is to encourage our heart with the truth of God's word, to give us um, cleats, as it were, to dig into ground that would not be slipping and sliding under our feet as we embrace the days ahead. Paul begins in verse 1 with an introduction to these matters, and we need to hear his tone, and we need to see the way that he outlines urging and confronting people. He's about to confront people and call them out by name, but before he does, he gives us a little backdrop in verse 1. He starts by saying, therefore, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He says, therefore, this Greek word always looks back. It's always looking back. Therefore, based on what I have just said, namely that our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20 of chapter 3, namely that Jesus is coming. He's coming again. He will transform our bodies. He will give us a new glorified body and we will be with him for all of eternity. Because of that reality, and even further back if you want to go that far, but because of all of this truth, I plead with you to stand firm in the Lord. Because of all this truth. But notice how he begins, before he calls these two women out by name and then calls the whole church out by name, notice what he does. He says, you are my beloved. You are my loved ones. I love you, the ones that I love and cherish. You could say my cherished ones, my treasured ones. Oh, know that I love you. I'm about to rebuke you and confront you, but I want you to know I love you. And notice he doesn't just say it once. In one sentence, he says it twice. My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved I think he's trying to make a point. I love you. I'm about to dive into your heart and get in your face, but I want you to know I love you. I love you. My brethren, you are my family. You are my brothers and sisters. I long to see you. It's literally whom I long for, my soul longs for. So maybe it's I long to be with you, but more likely it's just I long for you. I have affections for you. I think about you. I feel for you. My heart goes out to you. My heart breaks for you. Of course it does because he loves them and their family. He calls the Philippian church his joy. You are my joy. You are the cause of my joy. When I hear that you're walking with the Lord and glorifying him by spreading the gospel. You bring me great joy. You are my crown. You are the ones who bring me honor as I hear you're walking with the Lord as any teacher or pastor or shepherd would be honored by people who are following in the model of discipleship that they have given. All of these different aspects of his first sentence deal with his love for this church. I love you. 
And he's ultimately going to say the exact same thing at the end of verse 3 by saying, I love you again. I love you. I love you. We learn here, and we learn from these verses, many different ways in which we are to confront people. But one of the very first things that we learn is do not jump into confrontation without first affirming your love for the person you're confronting. Don't do it. Don't jump into confrontation. Just, hey, get your act together. Why don't you? And walk away. Paul is going to get up into two women's faces and speak to them and call them out by name. And before he does it, he says, you guys, I love you. I love you. Then he says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Literally, stand firm in the Lord in this manner or in this way. Stand firm in the Lord. There's the command. And if you were to ask, well, Paul, how am I supposed to live out that command? What does it look like to stand firm in the Lord? You're asking me, you're commanding me to stand firm. How do I do that? He says, do it in this way. Here's how you do it. And we're going to look at two of the ways that we are to stand firm in verses two through four. The first way is to live in harmony, live in harmony with one another or be reconciled with one another, if you want to say it that way. And the second way is rejoice in all circumstances. If you want to stand firm in the Lord, you must, number one, live in harmony together or be reconciled together. And number two, you must rejoice in every circumstance. You must rejoice in every circumstance. Let's start in verse two. Live in harmony with one another. In this manner, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. How are we to stand firm, Paul? Number one, by living in harmony. He starts in verse 2 by saying, I urge, I entreat, some of your Bibles might say. Some might even say, I plead or I beg. He's on his knees saying, please, Yodia and Syntyche, live in harmony in the Lord. Notice he says it twice. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. I urge you, please live in harmony. Or literally, live, live in harmony is translated elsewhere in Philippians. Be of the same mind or literally be of one soul. Stop being divisive. Stop fighting. Stop being disunified and be unified together. Have you ever wanted your or, or thought about the blessing of having your name being in the Bible? Wouldn't that be great to have your name in the Bible? We'd probably say, I'd love to be like, Daniel or Timothy or Epaphroditus, you know, some hero of the faith, if your name was in the Bible. How about these two women? Their name has been immortalized for over 2,000 years for fighting. And Paul has to call them out by name. The Philippian church obviously knew them. They're members of this church. And their fighting is obviously so well known that Paul can write this letter to the church and have it read out loud. It would be as if I were to stand up here and say, Church, Christ Bible Church, Brian Nix and Keith Evans, stop fighting. The only way I could righteously say that is if they have been fighting in such a way for the entire church to hear and to be aware of it. If it's just them and I've heard them um, off over by the bathrooms or somewhere, then I'd talk to them privately. That's Matthew 18. But if everybody knows, and this is an issue that we need to deal with as a church, I bring it before the church. I talk to the church. Everybody knows about it. Let's deal with it. Paul says to the whole church. He waits until the end, which again, I think is a lesson to us of how to confront people. He doesn't say, uh, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, uh, according to the will of God, blessings to all of you, grace and peace. By the way, two women, get your act together. And now let's talk about everything else. He's paved the way. I, I want you to notice just 
the way that Paul confronts. We need to hear how Paul confronts these two women. Number one, he's paved the way for it. He's established in three chapters the theme of unity, how to humble yourself. You remember, that's the whole purpose of this book, right? This letter is written to bring unity to this church. This church is struggling to be divided and divisive, and Paul says, I need to write and remind you how to be unified. And the greatest enemy to unity is selfish ambition and empty glory, empty conceit, vain conceit. So he says, stop having those two attitudes among yourselves, but instead have the mindset that was also in Christ Jesus. You remember the whole Christological doctrine that he preaches on is not about preaching about Christ. It's not first and foremost, I want to give you a treatise about Jesus Christ. It's I want you to stop fighting, and the way to stop fighting is to understand Christology. It's to understand the doctrine of how Jesus condescended, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so Paul has paved the way to plead for unity, to plead for selflessness, to to plead for humility. He's also, number two, you can see in these verses, he's going to recall past victories in the gospel. He says, I plead, I urge Yodi, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony, to be literally of one mind or of one soul in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, verse 3, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So they have worked in gospel ministry before. It would be as if he were saying, they've ministered with me on short-term missions trips, and I've seen them share the gospel. I've seen their love for Jesus. I know that they love him. This isn't saying, guys, get your act together. Do you even love Jesus? This is, I know you guys love Jesus, and I know you want to please him. Please be unified. This is Paul living out what he commands us to do. Love believes all things, hopes all things. He's not saying, get your act together, and really, are you even saved? He's saying, guys, I know you love Jesus, and I know you want to do what would glorify and honor him, so please do that, because I know you want to. He says, you've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, and your names are in the book of life. That's number three. Not only has he paved the way for bringing this confrontation up, not only does he recall their past victories in the gospel, but he also, number three, emphatically states their position as believers in the Lord. Emphatically does. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Guys, this isn't a salvific issue. This isn't, are you saved or not? This is, are you honoring the Lord or not? By the way, we know what this argument was not about. It was not pertaining to doctrine. Why? If, we, if it was pertaining to doctrine, if Yodia was saying there are only two people in the Godhead and Syntyche was saying there are only three people in the Godhead, then what would Paul have done? He would have said, who's right? Here's the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's the way that we know what the reality of the Godhead is. Here's the truth. If there's doctrinal error, he would call it out. And he would give the truth. We also know that this isn't an issue about sin. It isn't that Yodia has offended Syntyche in a sinful manner, or Syntyche has offended Yodia in a sinful manner. Because if it had been a sinful issue, then what would Paul have done? He does it in 1 Corinthians. He does it in 2 Corinthians. He would have said, stop sinning. That person is wrong. This person is right. Do not sin anymore. Here's how to make restitution. Here's how to repent. Here's how to be reconciled. So if it's not doctrinal, and it's not sinful, it's not a sin area, it's not a sin issue, then what are they fighting about? 
really only leaves one other option. Personal preference, personal opinion. And that's why Paul says nothing. Look, you guys could both be right. You guys could both be right. You want blue carpet, you want yellow carpet, who cares? You're both right. But when you take a personal preference issue and you turn it into a way to be divided with one another, that's when you have stepped into sin. And that's exactly what Paul calls out. Live in harmony. Who cares about your differences? Live in harmony. But he doesn't say, or else you might not be saved. He emphatically tells them, you are saved, and I know you want to glorify the Lord. And then he does something else. I want you to notice this. In verse 2, he says, I urge Yodia, and I urge Syntyche. He's talking to these two people individually. And then he talks to the true companion in verse 3. We'll talk about that in just a second. Then he talks to Clement. And he talks to fellow workers. And then in verse 4, he gives a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, because of the grammar, we know that that command is not given to one person or to only Yodia and Syntyche. That command is given to the whole church. It's a plural. Everyone rejoice. Which I love. It's another lesson for us. Paul doesn't harp on Yodia and Syntyche and just remain there with condemnation. Get your act together. Let me write five more chapters on how you need to stop fighting. He says something to these two women, and then he moves on to the entire church. Guys, you, you two women have things to work on, but so does the rest of the church. How painful would it be to have heard your name read in this letter, Yodia and Syntyche? I mean, the whole church probably looks back. You guys, you guys just got called out by the Apostle Paul. Everybody's kind of looking, going, wow. And then right after, there might be this cloud of shame over them. Paul says, hey, everybody, rejoice always. Now the cloud of shame moves to everyone, right? Everybody rejoices. Well, I can't say I do that all the time. How am I supposed to do that? He doesn't single them out for very long. And when he does, he then moves instantly to everybody else in such a way that he says, guys, be encouraged. We all are failures. We all need the grace of God. We all need the grace of God. Why does Paul care about them living in harmony? Why does he encourage them to do this? Why does he plead with them? Why is he begging, urging on his knees before these women saying, please live in harmony? Because he knows He knows disagreements come, and he knows if you let disagreements and personal opinions turn into a divisive attitude and a divisive spirit, it will destroy the church. Remember, that's why we started this book. We started studying this book at the beginning of the church plant because if anything is going to destroy this church from the inside out, it's going to be personal preferences that turn into a divided spirit, a divisive heart that destroys the church from the inside out. And before we know it, a non-biblical, an extra-biblical issue where the Bible is silent becomes an issue of walking away from the church. Paul knew Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. You know that passage of Scripture. There are seven things that God hates that are an abomination to him. What's the last thing that's on that list? All of them are character qualities, lust, pride, all of them are character qualities. And then God singles out a person. They're all character qualities. And then he says, I hate the one who brings division and stirs up strife. 
I hate a prideful spirit. I hate haughty eyes. I hate lustful eyes. I hate gluttony. I hate all these different things. Greed, a heart that is filled with greed. I hate all these things. And then I hate the one who stirs up strife and causes division. So Paul says, oh, please don't let your opinions and preferences cause division and strife. Don't let them cause division and strife. These kind of things destroy churches, and you've heard stories of that, and that's why Paul says, please live in harmony together in the Lord. Then in verse 3, he says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. He brings in this person. It's a singular, true companion. So this is one person. This might be a name. It might be a nickname. Your, your Bibles might say true yoke fellow. It might be a nickname to saying uh, this is somebody who comes alongside, kind of like a Barnabas, son of encouragement. This is somebody who comes alongside and always helps bear the burden, like an oxen and a yoke, always bearing the burden. Could be an elder in the church. Whoever it is, Paul knows who he's talking about, and the Philippian church knows who this true companion is. But here's the lesson for us. It is not failure to say, we have differences and we can't work them out and we need a third party. We need help. That's not failure. That's success. To humble yourself to the place where you can say, we have personal preferences and opinions and they are so big right now and we're not able to live in harmony together and so we need help. We need a third party. We need the true companion. We need Clement. We need help. I think that's one of the reasons why Paul writes this to the whole church in front of the whole church and calls these two women out. Deal with this and now you have um, built-in accountability. You have built-in accountability. Whatever it is, here's the principle for Christ Bible Church. Race to reconcile. I will never forget those words from Rick Holland when he was doing my wife and I, our, our premarital counseling. He said, let the banner fly across your marriage. Race to reconcile. Make it a competition. If there's tension in your relationship, beat the other person to asking them, how are you? Are you okay? Have I done something to offend you? Race. Race to reconcile. Obviously, that's biblical. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. The same is true for the church. Race to reconcile. It's never it's never wrong. It may be awkward, but guys, can we just say, let's not make it awkward. Let's make it loving to go to one another and say, is there something I've done that's offended you? That's loving. That's not awkward. Um, it's awkward only if you are the one that makes it awkward. No, why? Why do you think? How, what? If somebody says, have I done something to offend you? What should you hear in that statement? that you are obviously doing something to them or putting off some sort of an aura that you probably don't even know about that makes them think they hurt you and offended you. Bend over backwards with humility to say, oh, no, 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 you haven't. Is there some way that I'm putting off the vibe that I've offended you? I'm so sorry. We need a culture of humility and grace and compassion to be reconciled at all times. Legan Duncan says it this way. Here's the encouraging thing. Gospel forgiveness and reconciliation cannot be manifested until there has been a break in a relationship which requires gospel forgiveness and reconciliation. 
So every estrangement that exists in our congregation is not simply something that burdens God's heart that he longs to see corrected, but it is also an opportunity for gospel forgiveness to be shown. You can't show the gospel of grace of forbearing against a wrong against you and forgive a brother or sister who has wounded you until they've wounded you, until they've wronged you. And so I simply want to say, however deep your estrangement may be from a friend or from a family member, even in this congregation, do you understand that it is then and only then that the power of God's grace in gospel forgiveness and reconciliation can be shown? So cheer up. When that long, uncomfortable time frame finally comes home to roost and you realize, you know, it's been months since I've had sweet fellowship with a person who is a dear friend or it's been years since I've been able to have a civil conversation with a family member who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason has become estranged from me, cheer up. This is precisely the occasion in which the power of God's gospel grace can be most gloriously manifested in your life. And the Apostle Paul says here at the very outset, be reconciled, make it a priority, congregation, to work for these kinds of reconciliations. What a beautiful time frame for us to be studying this because we are here to celebrate the Lord's table. We must check our hearts and see if there is anything that is unreconciled, any relationships that are estranged, and if so, we are not able to partake of these elements. Jesus says, if you remember that you have something against you or your brother has something against you, if you have something against someone or your brother has something against you, you need to drop everything and go make it right before you, before you worship. So Paul says, be reconciled. If you want to have the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension, that will guard your heart and will guard your mind, you must be reconciled. That's obvious, right? We've been in unreconciled relationships before. You can't really go to bed very easily. You have turmoil in your heart. It's obvious when you're not at peace, when you're not reconciled. So first, if you want to have that peace and you want to stand firm in the Lord, you must live in harmony or be reconciled with those around you. Number two, you must rejoice in all circumstances. You must rejoice in all circumstances. This is verse four. This is your typical uh, Hallmarkian verse, if I can say it that way. This is on every little bookmark from Valley Book and Bible or from family Christian stores. This is on your coffee mugs. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What's the point? Nestle it into its context and realize that it's no accident that Paul places this command right after the explanation of the church division. When you get stuck into a quarrel with another brother or a sister, what does it make you want to do? Not talk to them, leave, become embittered, become estranged, gossip against them, don't come back to church? Paul says, no, no, here's the command, rejoice. Instead of being divided, rejoice. Paul expects there to be struggles in the church, so he says rejoice always. He gives this command to override the disagreement. Yodia and Syntyche, start rejoicing over your sister in Christ. And maybe then your personal differences will be laid to rest. Notice, because it's a command, this is something crucial. And I just The reason why I wanted to slow down, I was originally just going to go through all four points here this morning, but I wanted to slow down and use the remainder of our time to talk about joy. I think joy is 
uh, hugely misunderstood. I think joy is hugely misunderstood. And so I wanted to just take some time to settle in on this command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice is just the verb form of the noun joy. Have joy. Be joyful. Be filled with joy. And again, if you didn't hear me the first time, I will say rejoice. Rejoice. Here's the first thing I want you to see about joy. Because this is a command that Paul gives, joy has to be a choice. If Paul gives a command to you and you cannot do anything to make that command come about, then he's just fatalistically setting you up to fail. Do this, but you can't do anything about it, so tough luck. But if he says, I command you to do something, then you have a choice. That's why joy, much like love, is first and foremost an act of the will. It's a choice. Is joy emotionless? Is love emotionless? No, they are filled with emotion, but not primarily, not first and foremost. Joy, love are primarily, first and foremost, a choice and an act of your will. And then emotions follow. Emotions accompany joy. Emotions accompany love. But since this is a command, you have a choice. You can either obey the command or disobey the command. Let's just get this out of the way and feel bad about ourselves right now and we'll keep going on. If we are not rejoicing and choosing to have joy in the midst of every single circumstance, we're being sinners. Okay? That's, that's the bottom line. Now we can move on. What is joy? Can I give you two definitions? My favorite definition of joy is this. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. So what's it dependent on? I love this definition because it comes really straight from this verse. Rejoice in the Lord. It's not rejoice in your circumstances. It's rejoice in the fact that the Lord is in residence in your heart. He is sovereignly in control of every circumstance. He has promised that nothing that you go through will be a waste of your time. Everything that you go through is purposed, is planned, is ordained. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's ordained for your good and for his glory. That's a promise. Joy is not happiness. We don't rejoice in our circumstances, have joy in your circumstance. We rejoice in the Lord when the king is in residence in our hearts and we have a settled confidence that he is good and trustworthy. It does not take away the pain. It does not take away the sorrow, but it gives hope. Joy really is actively trusting in the Lord. That's what joy is. Actively trusting in the Lord that produces hope. Happiness is an attitude of satisfaction or delight based upon present circumstances. Joy has nothing to do with your circumstances. Or the reality is joy is only possible if your circumstances are terrible. I believe that only true believers can know joy, can experience joy. And, and I, I want to share my heart a little bit on Worship services. Um, we were able to, at the previous services at the bridge, I was able to share my heart a little bit about this. Um, but 
many new faces since we were there almost a year ago. Uh, many new faces. So when we gather together, I believe that the goal of the church is to infuse your heart with joy. Um, I believe there are three ways that you can go about trying to do that in a worship service. I think that the usual way that churches go about presenting their worship services before a congregation are um, happy, peppy, uh, I always call it you know, spiritual jazzercise, um, chipper. Uh, chipper is really a curse word in my Christian vocabulary. Um, I, many of you know me personally. I'm a very happy person, and I love life, and I love living life, and I love laughing. I do. But here's what I get very frustrated about. And this is why, and I, I'm saying this to you, not only that you would hear my heart, but I'm saying this to you so that you would hold me accountable to this. I, I think churches forget that walking through that door every Sunday morning are people who just lost their mother to cancer. People whose marriages, they're ready to divorce. They're ready to, to be done. I don't care about God. I don't care about what his word says. I'm ready to end this. Children are rebellious. Your hearts are broken. You just received word from the doctor that you have months to live. You're financially making it week to week and you don't even know if you're going to be able to pay your mortgage. That's who's walking through that door and that's the majority of people that are sitting in these seats. The majority of people. So, how do we help? How do we heal? How do we encourage their heart? Do we encourage by saying, come on, be happy, be chipper, life's awesome. Life is not awesome to that person right now. So, some churches go to the other side, say, we're going to have a funeral dirge. No, no, we're not going to have a funeral dirge either, because that's not going to help bring joy. What are we going to do? We are going to sing songs that say, when peace like a river attendeth my way, even when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is not well out there, it is well with my soul. Though darkness veils his lovely face, we trust in his unchanging grace. When all around my soul gives way, what are we admitting to? Everything around me is failing, is falling, is destructive, and I have no hope to stand on. I have no place to find rest or peace, but he is my hope. He is my stay. And brothers and sisters, that's joy. That's joy. He's my hope. Oh, the circumstances around me are awful. And all I want to do is crawl into a hole and die. That's all I want to do right now. But he's my hope and my stay. He will give me the strength to carry on. Can I say it this way? Worship services, especially the part of singing, worshiping the Lord through song, they should be done in such a way that those people, people walking through the doors hear that the people up front ultimately are saying with their hearts, we know you're suffering and we've been there too. We know you're suffering and we've been there too. And that's why we're pleading with one another, wherever you are, take courage, find hope. 
So, my goal in Christ Bible Church and with our worship services together is to create an atmosphere and an environment that does not downplay trials and suffering. We're not trying to come in here and say, isn't life amazing? It's just putting a band-aid on a gaping flesh wound that's just going to kill you. We want to come in here and say, I know I know that you are. This is why it's going to be perfect going through the summer, through the Psalms. Psalm 42. I know. Why are you in despair, O my soul? My tears have been my food all day long. Psalm 42. One of my favorite Psalms. David says, You are in despair, O my soul. You are downcast, but hope in God, for you will yet again praise Him. You're not praising Him now because it's so hard, but hope in Him, that's joy. Hope in him, and you will yet again come to a place where you can say, oh, life is good, because my God is good and I know it. That's why I believe only true Christians can know true joy. Only believers can know true joy. The reality is, if all we're trying to do when we gather together is create an environment of happiness, here's one of the reasons why I kick against that. That's what non-believers know how to do best, right? Let's be honest. They know how to be happy. When life's good, they're happy. So if we're just saying, let's be happy, we're just preaching a message that non-believers know. That's not going to change their heart. What hope do you give to a non-believer in the midst of your trials to just say, I'm happy, I'm fine, look at me, I'm smiling. What the world needs from Christ Bible Church is Uh, Really an indomitable joy that cannot be quenched or crushed in Jesus Christ that no matter what comes, we rejoice in the Lord. Not in our circumstances. We rejoice in the Lord. That's what the world needs. Then they will say, okay, we know how to be happy when we're going to Disneyland. How do you have hope to carry on right now in the midst of what you're going through? This is why I think one of the banners that needs to fly across Christ Bible Church one of the banners that needs to fly across across Christ Bible Church is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That is beautiful. Don't ever say to somebody who's weeping, don't ever say to somebody who is sad, who is not smiling, put a smile on your face, be happy, have joy. No. Weep with those who weep. Be sorrowful with them. And still you can rejoice. You can rejoice while you are filled with sorrow. Let us together at Christ Bible Church, as a church, brothers and sisters together, be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The bottom line is when God commands that we weep with those who weep, all you have to do is know enough people and you will always be weeping. That's all you have to do. Know enough people and you will always be weeping. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Oh, there will be times of happiness and gladness. And when those times come, rejoice and enjoy it and have happiness and have a smile with those who are smiling. But even as we're going to continue when we get into the fall in verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. It's not, don't worry, be happy. It's don't worry, pray instead and have joy. Don't worry about being happy. Don't worry about that. Don't put a smile on your face, make the world a better place. Don't worry about that. 
trust in God, and as you hope in him, joy will grow. I hope that makes sense. If you have any questions about that, if you have any concerns, any comments, any I need to clarify things, please let me know uh, because I want to be clear about that. I'm not condemning um, churches that do it differently. It, I, do, I don't think it's a personal preference because I think it's biblical. If we had time, I would take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I think that it is a biblical statement to say, um, take care of those who are suffering and, and work for them and don't just fight for a chipper attitude. Um, I, I think it's biblical. Maybe one day uh, we'll have a, a chance to dialogue about that from the scriptures together. But please, that's just an aside from my heart. Um, and if you have questions about it, uh, always feel free to talk to me. The second definition, rabbit trail done. The second definition that I want to give you for joy is rather lengthy. Uh, so hold on, and maybe you don't even want to write it down. You just want to listen. Um, joy is a gift from God. Uh, I have a lot of verses for this, and I actually think what I'm going to do is print this out. Here's what I'm going to do. Executive decision. I'm going to print this out and bring it on Thursday night. Okay? I'm going to print, because I have a lot of verses, I have a lot of breakdowns of this, we just don't have enough time to go through it. I'm going to print this out, bring it on Thursday night, give it to all of you who are there on Thursday night. Joy is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit. You have to be saved, and it's a gift from God as you live out his commands according to, to the means of grace. As they receive and obey the word of God, there are the means of grace. And as they go through great trials and fix their hope on future glory. So you have to have great trials in order to be able to have joy. And the way to ultimately get joy is to fix your hope on the future glory that you have. And again, uh, this entire page is broken down into each section of that definition with scripture references under it. So that's a whole sermon in and of itself. And that's why I'm just going to print it out and give it to you on Thursday for you to have. Now, back to our text. You might say, that's all nice and good, Paul. You live in la-la land. Thank you very much. You don't know what the real world looks like. Uh, It's the exact opposite. Where is he writing from? He's writing from jail. He's writing in prison. Where did the whole church in Philippi begin? Where did it get its start? Because he was preaching the gospel, he was stuck in jail, in stocks, being brutally tortured for the gospel, and he's singing, and he's praising God. And the Philippian jailer hears the, pra- the praises and the prayers and says, what must I do to be saved? Brothers and sisters, I personally, Patrick Carmichael, is not qualified experientially to tell you you must rejoice in all circumstances, and it's possible. I am not I have not been through even a fraction of the suffering that I know is present in this room. But Paul is very able and capable experientially to tell you, rejoice in all circumstances and you can do it. You can do it. It's not always going to be happy. Life is going to be difficult. That's what Jesus promised. In this life we will have tribulation, but take heart, have joy, take heart, have courage, have hope. It's not smile. It's not go to Disneyland. It's not have a party at Chuck E. Cheese. It's take courage. Have hope in the midst of your dark days. Rejoice in the Lord always. No qualification. It's just every moment of every day. Rejoice in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if we are to experience the peace that passes all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, 
then we must first be reconciled to one another and live in harmony. And we must second, um, absolutely, in every circumstances, have joy. If you do not have peace in your hearts this morning, can I plead with you as we come to the Lord's Supper? Um, Ask the Lord, is there a place in my life? Am I not reconciled with somebody? We must do that. Is there an area in my life where I'm struggling to rejoice? Again, please hear, it's not walk out these doors with a smile on your face. Don't wear a mask. Weep, mourn, but say, I will yet again praise God. I trust in him. I hope in him. He is my confidence and all around my soul is giving way and he is my hope and stay. The reality is that both of these things are only possible. Reconciliation and joy are only possible through the cross. They're only possible through the cross. That's what we celebrate together as we come to the Lord's Supper. Father, as the men come to pass out the elements and we receive the cup and we receive the bread and we sing and we prepare in our own hearts, Uh, to partake of these elements, I pray that you would remind us now, through your Spirit, if there is any unreconciled relationship in our lives, or if there is any area in our hearts where we are not having joy, we're not choosing, choosing to trust you. May we cling to your promises in Romans 8, that you work all things together for our good, that you are working for our greatest joy. You are working to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, and that's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. But you have promised to finish the work that you began. Your grace is marvelous, and that is what we celebrate. So now, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that as we sing, you would encourage our hearts, make us ready to celebrate your death and resurrection until you come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.